But there is a, a pattern, obviously, to the Ten Commandments, and I just remind you before we even read this one that they they all have a purpose in God, and the purpose of the Ten Commandments is sort of like God's bottom line. They're a sort of summary of God's basics. That's why I've called them fundamentals. And actually they are the maker's instructions. They're telling us how it would be best for us to live. They're telling us how we should live and could live, frankly, if there wasn't something wrong. That it shouldn't be any real issue to follow the Ten Commandments. But actually, when we look at them, we find that it is an issue. Many of them we have trouble keeping, certainly the first few. And as we begin to to realise that we fall far short of the Maker's instructions, their second purpose kicks in, if I can use that phrase, which is to show us that we aren't perfect, that we are sinners, that we fall far short of God's best. And actually, as a result of that, we need saving. Christians talk a lot about salvation and being saved, but actually it's because we realise we need saving. And something has to be done to change us. Many of us would struggle with some of these commandments to obey them, like the ones about perhaps coveting or lying and certainly worshipping God and giving him all our love and all our worship. They show us that we're not at all as we should be. And so they do have a purpose of, the Bible says, driving us to Christ. They turn us around and drive us to the answer to our sin, Jesus Christ, who died and rose again. little tiny bit more about that later on, because that's one of their big purposes. But there's sort of a third purpose for those of us who are Christians, and that is that the Ten Commandments give us an idea of what the righteousness God wants to fulfil in us is like. In Romans 8, it says the righteous requirements of the law can be fully met in us who don't live according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. In other words, when we become a Christian and are filled with the Holy Spirit, then the Spirit of God will draw us into a life in harmony with the righteousness that comes through from the law. So actually, perhaps in some ways they no longer become a law, more a promise. That as you walk in the Spirit, you will not cover. As you walk in the Spirit, you will not lie and steal. But you'll find that your heart is changed and you begin to behave in a different way. Well, the actual commandment I want to talk about this morning is the sixth one, which is you shall not murder. So let's just read a few verses around that from verses 12 to 17. We've uh, looked at uh, one of these before, but I'd just like to read those few verses. Exodus 20 verse 12. Honour your father and your mother so that you may live long in the land the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony against your neighbour, you shall not cover your neighbour's house, you shall not cover your neighbour's wife or his manservant or maidservant, his ox or donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbour. Now, you could say, you shall not murder. John, you're going to be short this morning, surely. It's a simple, short statement. You know, the vast majority of us in this room probably haven't committed murder. Hopefully we're not planning to, we won't expect to. That's it, John. Tell us we shouldn't go to murder. Let's get home and get the roast in the oven. Now, in actual fact, it's not as simple as that, not because it's complicated, but because you need to hear the word of God. And this simple, as I said, bottom line statement, you shall not murder, 
And it is murder, actually, let me just say, rather than the old translation, you shall not kill, because it is a particular sort of killing that is primarily meant in the original Hebrew. We'll talk about that in a moment. It's very important that we understand what's behind this, that there is an iceberg of wonderful truth hidden behind this simple, clear, very, very bold statement. God says to the humanity, this isn't just for the Jews, this is for men and women across the world, and he says, I'm saying to you, you shall not murder. You will not unlawfully kill another human being. And it is a statement of absolute fact, absolute prohibition that God makes. And it raises for us some universal issues, which are what I want to quickly look at uh, with you for a few minutes. And then I want to later, towards the end of what I want to say, talk about its application to us individually as Christians, because it has got an application, or at least the issues raised by it have. But the, the sixth commandment has behind it some very important truths that you will find in the Bible. And we need to say them loud and clear in 21st century England. Our culture has lost connection with its Christian roots. And the Christian roots of our culture give direction, they are a compass for our living. And today we are filled with confusion on the issue of human life and the right or not to take it, and animal life, and the whole issue. And actually the word of God is very clear. And this commandment is a summary of it, or is behind it, is a whole lot of biblical truth which comes to a clear point in this commandment. And this is some of the things that are behind this that you need to understand, we need to understand today. One, God is the creator of all life. God gives life. It is only God's right to terminate human life. We are not in control of our own lives. Increasingly, people want to get that way today. We want to go into now the, the euthanasia and choosing when you die. And, of course, at the other end, abortion, choosing what I do with my children and whether I want them or not. These things are an affront to a, a God who creates life. Actually, the bottom line is God will wants to decide when you die and when you live. Your life is not your own. It belongs to him. And you haven't got the right to take other people's lives or your own You are in his hands, and to him you are answerable when you do die. And there's a sobriety about this, that it's God's place to give and take life. And our lives are in his hands. Indeed, as Christians we need to remember this, our times are in his hands. God is the one in control of that. Then we can take a second sort of universal point. The act of killing another human being means that you take to yourself the role of God. You decide that person's life's going to terminate. That is an affront to God, apart from the harm, of course, it does to the person. But it's an affront to God that you take to yourself the responsibility to decide to end a life that he has started. And that is in itself a form of blasphemy, if you like, or a form of affront to the living God. That also is behind what is said in this prohibition. There is some wonderful, positive Christian truth which is behind this too. This commandment is remarkably simple and clear. It is uncluttered by conditions and categories. Babies, children, rich, poor, whatever race, men, women, old and young, 
There is not a subcategory. You shall not murder these categories, but these important people, these powerful people, particularly you don't murder, but these who have no contribution to make the society are weak, yes, you can wipe them out. There's none of that about it. And there's a reason why there's none of that about it. Because each individual is uniquely made in the image of God. And God alone is the one who has the right to deal with their lives, as I've said, and God sees every one of them as precious individuals. They are made in the image of God. If they're useful to our society or not, that is irrelevant. God made them. Their usefulness is not tied to their power or to their ability to produce wealth or to their importance in any human category. They are known to God and every human being is of great value in their own right. And indeed, human beings are uniquely made in the image of God. And they are distinctly different from animals. And so, actually, when human beings are racked with a plague, such as AIDS or some other horrible disease, tuberculosis, TB, you don't kill off every human being that's got the disease. It would be a very simple way of dealing with it, you get everybody who's HIV positive and you just kill them all. Put them in a big pit, burn the bodies. That's what we do with foot and mouth disease. That's what we do when animals have terrible fast-spreading illnesses. Of course we don't do it with human beings. And actually we are allowed to do it with animals, distressing though it is. Because there is a huge difference and it's a God-given difference between animals and a human being. And a human being is made in the image of God and it's not our place to play God and to decide when they die. That's fundamentally behind this. Now this is important Christian thinking. And it must be in place when people have to make complex moral decisions. I personally don't feel fully equipped to do that in every area. For example, we're now into areas of what, we, what sort of research we can have on fetuses and uh, things like that. But there are many areas, such as euthanasia, such as abortion, where I feel this gives us very clear things to say, whether we're expert medics or not. That there is not a right to terminate a, Christian, a human being's life just like that, because it's inconvenient or is convenient to do so, or it fits in with some thing to do with maybe the spread of a disease or something else. We must find another solution. I don't say we just put up with a disease. It's like the whole AIDS, HIV thing. We, we desperately put our wits and our resources and our science to trying to find a solution to AIDS. We don't say, as I said, everybody is HIV positive, kill them all off, burn their bodies, get rid of them, and we'll clear the, clear the decks. Of course we don't. We put our, our, and that must apply in a lot of other areas where sometimes, sadly, it doesn't. Because we need to come with an understanding of biblical principles about the uniqueness of the human life. Here's another thing which is behind this commandment. Every single member of a community, however lowly, has a right to be protected from their lives being endangered by other members of the community. That's Christian thinking. That's biblical thinking. Every member, however weak and lowly, of any community should have a right to have their lives protected from being terminated by other, probably powerful members of the community. And actually the government is ordained by God to fulfil this role. That comes out to some extent in Romans 13, which we're not going to be able to look at this morning. I might have touched it if I was giving a more thorough sort of 
sub, uh, exploration of the subject. But, but actually, God has ordained governments to protect and help protect us. They are allowed to wield the sword to protect life. Sadly, when governments don't do that, and they frequently don't, it is God they will have to answer for. And uh, they will be answerable to him. But there is a sense in which it is a God-ordained principle that everybody's life should be protected wherever possible. Now we need to say something about the actual phrasing. You shall not murder. It's a Hebrew word, reisa. I'm not sure if I pronounced it correctly. I don't know if anybody knows how to pronounce it. But what it means is killing another person for illegitimate reasons or personal reasons. It means killing another person for illegitimate or personal reasons. What we might call unlawful killing. Because actually, on a biblical perspective, it doesn't apply to all life-taking. So bear with me as I will try and explain that. The Bible, I haven't got time to take you to the Scriptures, but it does include the acceptance of manslaughter, which is accidental or unintentional killing. And that is not treated in the same category. The Bible does actually have a uh, support, frankly, for capital punishment, which might shock some of you or surprise some of you. And uh, perhaps the simplest summary, I will put the scripture up, or Gina will for me, is in Genesis 9, verses 5 to 6. And so I briefly, this is the, what's called the Noahic covenant, the covenant God made with Noah. And if you're a Bible scholar and you're interested in reading around it, you will find in the verses following the bit that's on the screen, several times it's made clear that this is for all generations. Just as God promises not to flood the whole world again, next time the judgment will be by fire, so there is an all generations element which still is going on. For example, verse 12 says, for all generations to come. So there is a long-standing, worldwide sense to this particular part of the Noah, of God's word to Noah. But I'll just read it because it helps me to illustrate something. For your lifeblood I will surely demand an accounting. I will demand an accounting from every animal and from each man too. I will demand an accounting for the life of his fellow man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For in the image of God has God made man. Now I want you to understand something that's very profound and important here. God is actually reinforcing the sanctity of human life. And this is not an illogical argument. The point scripturally is that only God has the right to take another's life. And taking someone else's life is so enormous in terms of its sin and crime. It is such an enormity that in order to protect the sanctity of life, God has decreed the person who does that forfeits their own life. It shows the enormity of what they do. It is a now judgment to be followed by an eternal judgment. And it is to reinforce the preciousness of the life of the innocent victim. And it reinforces in a community the preciousness of an individual's life and the fact that no one has the right to go around just killing other people. Now, I don't even want to get into the politics of our country at the moment, but I do want to say that it always strikes me as ironic that we are rather smug and proud of the fact we haven't got capital punishment for, say, convicted, very clearly proven murderers, 
and yet at the same time we have plenty of abortions and we consider euthanasia and other things. We are cockeyed in our thinking about this issue of life and death. I'm not going to bang the drum and say change the law, but I want to say to you that there is more biblical justification for a properly used capital punishment for murderers than there is for abortion or euthanasia or many of the other things that we freely contemplate today. We need to think, what are the biblical thinking? The thinking behind this, uh, uh, this argument is not to cheapen life, it's the opposite. It's saying an individual's life cut short by another individual is so precious, the crime is so serious, that this is what God decrees as the way to handle it. Now, I don't want to get too distracted this morning because the bottom line is clearly that one human being cannot ignore another human being's created right to be in the image of God and their life to be in God's hands. And they can't just cut that short. The only conditions where that is changed, and this is one of them that we're glancing at at the moment, is when God himself ordains that. So the biblical thinking, I trust I'm not losing you, the biblical thinking is that there are exceptions to this rule, but they are only exceptions that God gives us. In other words, if we can find that God says, I will permit the killing of another person, in those circumstances there is a permission given. But the whole thing is on the basis that only God has the right to decree the circumstances in which this happens. And we need to be very careful and thoughtful that we are doing that in the right way. And this leads us into the whole discussion of things like just war, which is a big discussion for Christians on the basis, without getting into the details because the time's not there, but on the basis that God has ordained governments to bear the sword, this is Romans 13, to protect its citizens on the sort of summary basis that to protect some lives you sometimes have to take others, i.e. you protect your nation from the attack from outside. On that basis, many Christians have felt comfortable with the idea that there is a case for a just war. And I think sometimes you can argue that. But it is a, an, a high standard and it needs to be carefully looked at because the killing of another human being needs to be fundamentally to protect other life. I mean, that's the basic philosophical position, that it's to protect other life. If you're a government, you have a right to protect those under your care and sometimes you will take other lives to do that. If you're a judicial system, you sometimes have the right to take the life of a proven murderer to protect the life and to recognise the sanctity of the lives of others and innocents, so on and so forth. But it is an important principle and the burden of proof is always upon those who are taking a life to show that it is a God-ordained reason for doing so and not a serious violation of the Sixth Commandment. And so I want to quickly say, and in this area, we are struggling to understand these values today. I feel we are in a very confused place as a nation. We don't apply the death penalty to any form of murder these days, even the most obvious and vile and cheapening of human life. And yet, in our entertainment, we're constantly watching gruesome and sometimes very detailed deaths. They're much often part of our entertainment in films, on TV, computer games and so forth, where there's multiple violent deaths that people are happy. All right, they're virtual ones, but there's a reveling in it. And sometimes we make heroes out of the most gruesome murderers, something like Silence of the Lambs. You know, and we're quite happy to live with this strange mixture 
uh, in our thinking. In our real world, there are, uh, sadly, a growth of murders, real murders, where people are killed, not only in what we might call traditional violent crimes, if there is such a thing, like an armed robbery, but often in callous and meaningless ways. These random stabbings, almost, it seems, that seem to be almost a, a bit of a, a, a fashion in certain parts of our inner cities, you know, with young people often just stabbed and killed pointlessly, or shot, of course, shootings as well. Road rage murders we even had in recent years. People killing another person because they cut them up on the road. We've even had, um, and do have, people who, what, happy slappings, isn't it? People who actually killed other people for entertainment on their mobile phone. An utter cheapening of another's life. I have to wonder sometimes if that isn't tied to the fact that we have no capital punishment, that's a personal viewpoint, but I think a biblical viewpoint would be there would be in our society a far higher regard for human life and a sort of enormity made evident to people that if you take another person's life, that is the ultimate affront to God and to them and it's a very serious crime. Certainly we seem to have moved a long way from that. In my own lifetime, terrorism has become very common. I mean, obviously, I saw lots of, grew up all through the IRA terrorism, but then we now have the Islamic sort of terrorists, generally speaking, I think, and that seems to be even more random killing. It's not even with warnings, it's not just against uh, property, it's deliberately to kill people. Now, it, I don't know that I can tie all this together, except that there's a spirit of contempt for other people's lives which is linking it, that if, it, if it's politically, politically expedient, if it furthers your aim, you can just wipe people out. In the second half of the 20th century, we have developed some extraordinary methods of war, often called uh, weapons of mass destruction. And their whole thinking is that you just wipe out as many people as possible with a germ warfare thing or a biological warfare thing or, of course, the nuclear bombs themselves. And there seems to be no sense that you are destroying one army to protect your people. And of course that started with the blanket bombing of the Second World War. So there's a whole thinking which seems to be extremely cheap in one way about human life, which has crept into our whole society and culture. And then there is the abortion issue. Abortion became legal in 1967. I don't know the numbers actually, my, date, my statistics are out of date, but I believe it's probably well over 5 million now abortions have been performed in this country and frankly a tiny percentage, maybe 2%, are to actually protect the life of the mother, which might bring them into the category of, of, of biblical, if you like, justified situation. I, I mean, without getting into the detail, we are in an area of severe cheapening of human life. The vast majority of these abortions will be for fairly minor reasons, social reasons, sometimes now quite minor medical things, a hair lip or something. And it is actually saddening to me. I can sort of feel the weight of it when I read these things. You sort of feel something of God's pain at, at, at the cheapening of human life that seems to be going on at so many levels. And I, one wonders how much longer before the whole euthanasia thing is, is really accepted and, you know, you can decide to, to kill Granny because she's been going on for too long or she may decide it for herself and, and that's fine. And it's worrying because we need to understand these are very important decisions. Human beings are uniquely made in the image of God. Each one is precious. They may even have a mental or physical disability. They're precious to God. God gave them life, God will take life. That's the big thing, but it's on the big shoulders, God's. 
People moan about that sometimes, but we leave that to God. It's not for us to play God. And this commandment keeps reminding us of that. The sanctity of human life from conception to old age needs to be emphasised and defended in our day and age. Every single human being made in the image of God. Every one of them valued and uh, having eternal uh, a soul that is answerable to God. And our inherent humanity, a uniqueness made in the image of God needs to be protected and uh, sanctified, as it were, by the respect that comes out from this commandment. Okay, that's a very big subject and it really needed longer than I could give it this morning. But it is important that we think about these things, that we're not trivial in our thinking and superficial. We think, what does it mean to have a biblical view of human life? Now, when it gets into the detail, and I know in my congregation this morning there'll be people who work in the medical profession and have to tussle with these things. I do understand you have some very... My own son works uh, in palliative care and uh, works as a pharmacist in Southampton and dealing with... um, cancer patients, people uh, in hospices and things. There's all sorts of issues that have to be brought up and real nitty-gritty decisions have to be made. But there are some big guidelines in Scripture. They still don't solve every little question, but they give us some major directions about the preciousness of human life. And we need to understand them and at least live in the light of them, even as we tussle and pray over the details of some of the things that we can do and are asked to do today. I want to quickly finish with an application to us as individuals, which isn't really about these big subjects. They were the big uh, uh, issues raised, but it's actually a personal challenge to all of us before we go home today. Because we could read all this, and I hope you find it interesting. Trust I'm not boring you. It may stimulate discussion when you go home. You may not agree with everything I've said. That's fine. You need to think about it. That's what I want you to do. But actually... In the end, we could be a bit theoretical. It could be all up here. You know, that's very very important, but whatever. I'm not going to murder anyone. Well, God's got something a little nearer to the bone to say to all of us this morning. Because there is a more in-your-face aspect of the Bible on this subject than we may realise. Probably most of us haven't murdered anyone. But actually, God says, I'm not... Particularly when you get into the New Testament, which is where we're living in the New Covenant age... I'm not only interested in the fact you don't murder people, I am concerned about the root in your heart that creates murder. And God's always interested in roots to deal with fruits. Murder is just a fruit of a root. That's what God says, and that's the truth. And actually, the good news is, the good news is, through the Gospel and through the Holy Spirit, God can deal with the root and therefore with the fruit. Yes, praise God, I hope you never murder anyone. But I hope it isn't because you don't want to be caught or spend 25 years in prison or something. I trust it's because God totally deals with the root and you don't even think that way because God's changed the way you think. And in the Bible there seem to be, in the New Testament, picking it up quickly, three major roots of murder. And these roots can be in every heart in this room. This is very much an area where you don't say, well, you know, thank God I'm holier than thou, there but for the grace of... You know, and you sort of think, oh, well, I'm not in this category. God would come very close to us all, including me this morning, and say, hang on a minute, but for circumstances, you're not so different to a murderer. You're not so different because the roots are very near to home. They're these three things. The first one is anger. 
they're actually, I'll tell you in advance, anger, envy, and hatred. But we're going to look at them one, very briefly, one at a time. Anger. Now here's a scripture that's going to go up. Matthew 5, verses 21 to 22. You have heard that it was said in, of, of, to the people long ago, do not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to his brother, Raka, which is a sort of despicable term, is answerable to the Sanhedrin. But anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. And what the Ten Commandments are helpful. <laughs> they're like a plumb line, they're like a spirit level. But God says they show something's wrong. I want to tell you a bit more of what's wrong. What's wrong is your heart. It's like when you see something crooked in a building and you may think it's a superficial fault, you know, take a couple of bricks out, put a new couple in and we'll do it. No, no, there's something wrong in the foundations. This is a serious problem. That's why it's leaning over, like our cathedral. It's got problem in its foundations, that's why it's leaning. You can't solve that with a couple of new bricks. You've got to get right under, as someone did 100 years ago, and redo the foundations. Well, God says that to us. There is something... Murder's horrible. Why is there so much murder? Why is it all around? Well, one of the problems is anger in the human heart. Many murders are the result of sudden, uncontrollable anger. Whether it's road rage, crimes of passion, crimes in the home, many a murder is a result of a surge of anger. And if you haven't felt a surge of anger that scares you, you're very fortunate. I have. I felt something, I got so angry, and in the wrong circumstances, I could do someone a mischief. Now you may think, oh, you're a horrible bloke. Well, perhaps I am. Thank God I'm saved. But even me, and I, I know I present reasonably politely and pleasantly, but I tell you, I know, I know that. I know that sort of surge of anger in my heart. Just blind anger. And frankly, I don't care what the consequences are. And I think that that that, that is an unhealthy thing that God has to deal with. It's not that you've just got to be really chilled and laid back. It's something much more God putting your heart right. And it can happen through the Holy Spirit. Many of us carry some very strong anger, possibly from the way we were treated ourselves. It may not be only our sin, it's those that sin against us. But God doesn't want you going round angry, raging. It's not much better than being a murderer. Maybe you only use words. In your anger, you use some nasty words. You kill people with your words. You cut them down with your words. God doesn't see that as a significant much better than not murdering them. Okay, it is better that you let them live, but it's not okay. Alright? To just sort of trash someone in anger with your mouth, Jesus said, that's the same. You're going to be under judgment just through doing that. Now, you have to realise that's why you need the gospel. That's why you need to be forgiven. That's why you need to be changed. Maybe you didn't actually ever kill someone. But maybe often you have surged in anger. You wished you could kill them. You've spoken and killed with your words. Well, there is a hope and an answer in Jesus. And Christian brothers and sisters, we need to understand this is what Jesus wants to do in us. The Holy Spirit wants to change us to take out that root of anger, to put in the fruit of the Spirit, which is rooted in the Spirit, and in the Holy Spirit's work in your life. It's not just controlling yourself, though actually it is a sort of control, because the, one of the fruits of the Spirit is self-control. But it's a Spirit-guided one, not just out of some legalistic thing. Let's quickly go on. Another root is hatred. 
1 John 3, verse 15. I think that will go up on your screen. Anyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life in him. Hatred is a settled, bitter dislike of someone. Hatred is letting it grow and mature. Anger, that is, grow and mature. It's feeding your anger. William Blake did a great poem on it. It's letting it grow and letting it fruit. Now, hatred is a nasty thing. And hatred often leads to murder, often leads to real, literal murder. Hatred between races, hatred between religions, hatred between nations, hatred between individuals is frequently fruited in actual murder. So murder certainly is wrong, but so is hatred. Hatred's not good. It's not good to hate people. Jesus is going to change your heart and he's going to change it so radically that you will do this. You will forgive them. The antidote to hatred is forgiveness. Hatred can be justified. The person did something hateful to you. But that is not a way to live. It's not good for you, it's not good for them. But it's particularly not good for you. And God wants to deal with that root. And he can and will through the work of Jesus on the cross. The blood of Jesus cleanses us from unrighteousness and the Holy Spirit comes in to change us and teaches us to forgive others. To actually forgive the person that so messed you up. To forgive that nation, that race that you hate. You've been brought up to hate. People are brought up to hate. Catholics, Protestants, Jews, Muslims. Brought up to hate the Germans, French. (laughs) Sometimes it's a little bit of a joke. Sometimes it's not a joke. And we need to see that the Holy Spirit changes us. That we do genuinely learn to love. And that we actually have forgiveness in our hearts for those who may well have badly treated us. And there's a wonderful summary in Romans 12 of what the Holy Spirit will do in your heart if you let him. 12 verses 21 and 22. It goes up. Thank you. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. That doesn't mean... Basically, God's judgment will deal with him. You, You don't deal with him. Let revenge come from the Lord, not from you. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. There is a radically different way of handling enemies in the Bible, and it's to love them. You can't do that naturally. The law never required you to go that far. It was hard enough to love your neighbour, let alone your enemy. But we're not under law, we're in the new covenant. We're in the life in the Spirit, and we've got the Spirit of Jesus in us. And the Spirit of Jesus is going to teach us to forgive, and to overcome evil with good. So that when someone does something evil to you, you actually do something good to them. And that is a powerful weapon to disarm the enemy. You can't do it in your own strength. It will only be by having a new heart and a new spirit, which God will give you through through the work of Jesus and your faith in him. There's a third route, just the last one, and it's envy. So there is hatred uh, and there is envy. Now, envy is fascinating and challenging, to be honest. Do you know the first murder in history was done because of envy, when Cain murdered his brother Abel? Now, I've actually got the scripture for that, um, but it's almost like a bit long to read. But put it up, please. Thank you, Gina, anyway. 
But it just is a summary of what happened. You can probably read it quite quickly in front of you. But the gist of it is that Cain was envious of his brother being bringing something acceptable to God. Now, I think the general understanding is they both knew what they should bring as an offering to God. And, that, and in fact, God required, as he still does, that, that sin has to be paid for. And thank God, Jesus has paid for our sin. But at this time, which is before Jesus, animal sacrifices often represented the payment of sin. Well, Cain didn't bother with that. Cain brought God some of the fruit, animal, uh, not animals, but the apples and pears and things he'd grown. And God said, no, that's not acceptable. Now, the issue was between Cain and God. It wasn't, Abel just did the right thing. Abel didn't go, no, 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 no record of him doing that. Abel just did it. Abel did what God wanted him to do. Cain himself chose to do his own thing and God said, that's not it. So the issue was between Cain and God. But Cain was very angry, his face was downcast. Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out in the field. And while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. He murdered him out of pure envy. It wasn't that Abel had done him any direct harm, it was pure naked envy. That's the first murder in the Bible. The worst murder in the Bible was also done out of envy. Matthew 27, 18. This is the Jews handing Jesus over to be killed. For he knew it was out of envy they had handed Jesus over to him. That's Pilate. He knew their motive. Pilate understood that it was envy that drove them. Brothers and sisters, envy is a nasty thing. We can be quite light-hearted about it. We may not be too light-hearted about hatred, but envy, envy can drive people to murder. Not only Cain, historically it happens too. It's like a foul weed, it grows and grows till you think, that person is just in my way, that person doesn't deserve to live. And in the end, literally you may end their life. Envy does poison a heart deeply. And so we need to understand that God wants to deal with envy in our lives. He doesn't want it to grow like a poisonous weed and bring that horrible fruit. And the Holy Spirit will change your heart. But, brothers and sisters, all of us here this morning, we need to be a bit sober, as we perhaps, I hope, rightly can say, well, I haven't murdered anyone. God comes close to us and says, but what about your anger, your hatred and your envy? Because those are the roots from which the fruit of murder grows. And actually, envy as I say, it's got quite a remarkable track record in the Bible of being a root from which murder grew. And we need to let the Holy Spirit change us. And one of the antidotes to envy, you know what it is? It's humility. Just as forgiveness is an antidote to, uh, to hatred, humility is the antidote to envy. Because humility, genuine humility, is not being a doormat, it's just honestly being personally grateful for what God's done for you. It's understanding that you stand before God in your own right, you are answerable and accountable only for yourself. The only person you should test yourself against is God and Jesus. It's not looking at other people and comparing yourself to other people. Your security and your peace is found in your relationship with God. And you are humble in a godly sense when you are at peace with yourself and with God. You're grateful for all you've received from God. You want to obey him and he says, put others first. So you put others first. 
if he blesses someone else, you're delighted he blesses other people. It doesn't give you problems because you're at peace, you've got your blessings, you've received what you need to receive. You do business with God on your behalf. You're not concerned about what God's doing with others. And actually, you're more concerned with pleasing God than pleasing men, which also releases you enormously. So, biblical humility is a wonderful protection from envy. And envy can't grow in the soil of a humble heart. It's like, a, it's like an acid soil or something that can't grow in it. It just kills off envy. You need a humble heart. Now, it can happen, brothers and sisters. This is the work of the gospel, to change our hearts. Okay, we don't want to end up murdering anybody, but we also don't want to end up riddled with anger and hatred and envy. What we do want to be is filled with the Spirit and letting the fruit of the Spirit come in our lives, which is love, joy, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness and self-control. Against such things, there is no law. This is, we're not in the realm of law. You don't need a law to tell you not to murder people if you're walking in the Spirit. The real answer to the problems highlighted by the Ten Commandments is not to try harder. The real answer is to be saved, born again, filled with the Spirit, put faith in what Jesus did, who died for your sin, died for your curse, died for your law-breaking, and who has provided hope and help that you might walk in the Spirit and not fulfil the lusts of the flesh. That the fruit that the Spirit will bring in your life will be kindness and goodness and joy and love and patience, faithfulness, gentleness and self-control. And you don't walk under the law, you walk in the realm of grace. Amen?